On last week's episode of Isolated But Not Alone, I discussed the holidays. They are upon us, and they can be times of great joy and times of great sorrow and difficulty. I received such an overwhelming response from my episode on the holidays that folks wanted to hear more. They wanted to hear more specifically about grief during the holidays and how to possibly address that. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. All right, welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. Today we're going to be discussing the holidays, part two. And this week's episode is going to focus on grief during the holidays. I want to thank everybody who sent me messages, who reached out to me, who discussed with me my episode on the holidays. And I received an overwhelming amount of feedback on folks who agree that sometimes the holidays feels like going into battle. And I got to hear lots of stories, some humorous, some quite sad about families and the battles that they had during the holidays. And so I just wanted to develop that a little bit more and discuss grief during the holidays. And when I think about grief, I think about how easily it can be triggered during the holidays. Just the other day, my grief was triggered by my senses. Now, there are lots of ways that grief can be triggered. And when I think of that, I think of Prost and Prostian. Uh, The meaning of Prostian is basically how a sense can trigger a memory from your past or your childhood. Some people call it the Proust phenomenon. And when I think of that, I think of olfactory memory. And what that is, is kind of like the recollection of odors. And we've all experienced this at some point in our life where... You're going outside and you smell like the fresh autumn leaves or a chill air. You know, you smell something and it brings you back to a time earlier in your life. I often think of my grandma's perfume. She always wore this very specific perfume and I have no idea what it would be called. But when I smell it, and it must still exist because I smell it occasionally, I'm instantly brought of her. And that's kind of what I'm talking about is our senses can bring us back into past memories. And oftentimes, not only can our senses trigger past memories, but it can also trigger traumatic things, traumatic memories. It can trigger grief. And so let me give you an example of that. Just a couple days ago, I was listening to the Nutcracker Suite. The Nutcracker Ballet. And in listening to that, I was brought back to memories 
of my childhood. Every year from as early as I could remember, my grandmother would participate with the local symphony in performing the Nutcracker Ballet. And the local dance troupe would come and they would perform the dance and put on the theatrics that came with that. And so every year we got free tickets because <laughs> my grandma participated uh, in the symphony. And so my mom would drag us every year to go see this during this time of the year. And I remember we'd dress up, and we rarely did this. We rarely hung out as a family like this, and we rarely got dressed up for anything. But yet for this time, we would get dressed up, and we would go, and we would sit down, and we'd watch the Nutcracker Ballet. And I can remember as a child, I both loved this time and dreaded it. I loved it because it was a time to connect with my family in ways that did not normally happen. And I have fond memories of that. And I didn't care for the dancing. And I didn't care to be sitting for hours next to my mom and getting in trouble, right? Because as a young person, I probably wasn't the most well-behaved person. I was a highly kinesthetic and intelligent child, right? So sitting still was not my thing. And so having to sit still for that long and watch people prance and dance around a stage was very difficult for me. And I remember as a kid, I used to equate it to NASCAR. So for those NASCAR fans out there, uh, my experience with NASCAR, my other grandparents watched NASCAR religiously. Church and NASCAR, that was their life on the weekends. And I remember as a kid, I watched NASCAR not to watch cars go around a track over and over and over and over and over again. That was madness. But to watch for crashes and your eyes would be glued to the screen. Not to watch whoever won or who was passing who. I mean, literally the same cars passed each other in halftime. You couldn't tell which was which. But that moment when a potential accident could happen. And as a young kid, I didn't quite understand the consequences of what those car crashes could mean for people. Injury death, right? I didn't understand those things. I just thought it was cool to watch cars bust into pieces and smoke and all the excitement that came with that. And I often found myself doing the same thing with the Nutcracker Ballet because if you went to the Nutcracker Ballet long enough, you would see an accident. And you got pretty good at looking and being able to sense when those were about to happen based on movements that the actors and the dancers were making. And it was kind of like NASCAR to me. I was always there participating when somebody would biff it, right? When somebody would fall down or miss their step or slip. You know, not understanding the consequences of what that could mean for the dancer and injuries and potential concussions. And so that was something that brought me a tremendous amount of joy and a tremendous amount of stress and difficulty as well. And when I started to think about these memories and connecting them with the present... And the present currently is, is that I love the Nutcracker Suite. I love listening to the music. I get excited every year for Christmas. That's one of my traditions is to listen to that and to potentially watch it or go to it if I can. And I've gotten other people interested in it as well, trying to relive the magic that I neglected in my childhood. And I was sitting down with my two little ones and sitting them in front of the screen to kind of have them experience for the first time some version of the Nutcracker, and there is lots of versions of this out there. And I found one that was part documentary, part the ballet, and it was put on by a children's group. 
So it's kind of fun for the kids to kind of see behind the scenes as well as get to experience and and kind of see the joy and excitement their young minds had at, ooh, what's happening? What's the Nutcracker? Who's the Nutcracker? Is the Nutcracker real? Who is the Rat King? You know, and things of that nature. But at the same time, in experiencing the joy of the present with them, part of my mind was still on the past and the past experiences I had. And it created inside of me both joy in the present and it triggered that deep sorrow that I had in losing my mom in the past year. So I just want to spend some time to talk about that, to talk about grief, not just for myself, because it's always helpful to process these experiences that you have, but to kind of share what little bit I know about grief in order to be helpful in these small, rural, and isolated communities where people are often experiencing grief and have no outlet, no way to process it outside of themselves. So I've got some interesting articles here. And the first one is just a definition of grief from Mayo Clinic. And I always find that Mayo Clinic stuff is excellent. And they define grief as a strong, sometimes overwhelming emotion. And they discuss it happens regardless of whether it stems from the loss of a loved one or a terminal diagnosis or maybe even the terminal diagnosis of someone they love. And I'll take it a step further that you could also have deep sorrow and grief for the loss of a relationship, for the loss of a job, for the loss of a friend, and for those in addiction, people who are struggling with addiction, who are attempting to remain sober and live a life of recovery, often for the first several years experience grief from the loss of their drug of choice. And it's very, very powerful. Mayo states that People who are experiencing grief will feel numb and removed from everyday life. That they are unable to carry on with the regular duties because they are literally overwhelmed by their sense of loss. And I've experienced this and I've seen it in other folks and heard it described by other folks. When you are not fully up to par. Now it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do your regular duties, though some people can't. But it means that you are not doing them with the normal ability that you could or have in the past. Because part of your mental space, part of your emotional space is carrying the heavy load of loss. I talk about resources a lot. What I mean by that is mental resources, emotional resources, spiritual resources. We all have resources within us, right? Things that we can tap on and tap into, right, for health. And we have them on the outside of us. When I think about that, I think about spiritual. We can talk with our clergy, right? We can connect with our spiritual leaders and with our religious beliefs. When I think of mental resources, we can go and get mental health care. Same thing with physical health care, right? So those are resources. And sometimes we have resources within us, and sometimes we have to seek resources outside of us. But grief often strains our resources. Because a portion of our resources have to deal with that deep loss or try to manage it in some way. So Mayo goes on to say, grief is a natural reaction to loss. Grief is universal and it's personal. And people experience it differently than others. Mayo gives some advice 
And it says, experts advise those grieving to realize they can't control the process and prepare for the stages of grief. And the stages of grief are usually mostly discussed in our society. So we at least understand that there are stages. But people vary on the, the amount of stages or the number of stages. And Mayo goes on to say, understanding that why they are suffering can help. For example, they talk about guilt for a loved one's death. They also go on to say it can last for months or years, and that time kind of heals these wounds. And as the more time that goes by, people can start to adapt to life with what they've lost, or life without what they used to have. And I found that kind of helpful just to kind of give a basic explanation of grief. Now, there are five stereotypical stages of grief. They are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and eventually acceptance. And the stages don't always occur in sequence, and some might be occurring simultaneously where it's hard to tell the difference between one or the other. And we all experience them differently. So it's hard sometimes to put examples to them. So the first one, denial, is it kind of helps us to initially survive the loss. Things become meaningless, things become overwhelming, things stop making sense. It's almost like the initial shock that we experience, as well as how we try to cope with that shock. One thing I've experienced that I connect to denial is when my mom passed away, I would often have reoccurring dreams, and maybe you've experienced this, maybe you haven't, where they were still alive in the dream. And it was so realistic And it was such a carrot that my mind and my heart sought to gravitate towards that when I woke up, oftentimes it was difficult to determine reality from the dream. That's called derangement, in case you're wondering. And I found it happening quite a bit after my mom had passed away. Or going up to call them, right, and have a conversation with them, and then mid-dial realizing that they can't answer the phone because they're not alive. That's kind of how I was experiencing denial when my mom passed. You know, maybe you've experienced that, uh, maybe you haven't. But oftentimes, denial helps us. It kind of helps us to space out the complex web of emotions that we're experiencing so that they don't completely run us over. The next stage is anger. And anger is both easy to experience and has the most consequences, it seems like, for emotions, meaning that when we're angry, people notice, right? People say things. We might experience guilt and shame about our anger, right? But anger is a necessary stage of healing, and avoiding it might be harmful. You have to be willing to feel your anger, even though it may seem like it will never, ever end. Ironically, the more you experience it, the more you sit in that uncomfortable emotion, oftentimes the more it will lessen. And this comes out many different ways. I remember, again, to use my mom as an illustration, I was very angry, not just at God and at the world, but at myself, right? That self-anger. Anger that I wasn't the best son, anger that I didn't do more, angry of how the end was, just anger, anger, anger. I was kind of like a porcupine in my house, you know? (laughs) Anything could trigger that anger response, right? To lash out towards others, even though really... It was part of the grieving process for me. Bargaining is the next one, you know, where we try to bargain with our higher power or with others, you know, that we'll do this if you do that kind of mentality. 
And then we even kind of bargain within ourselves. If only I would have done this, maybe this would have been differently. You know, and I think of like traveling in the past with, when my father passed away, that maybe if I was able to tell him earlier not to be doing heavy narcotics, that he would eventually die young, maybe he wouldn't do that, right? That kind of almost lie that we tell ourselves that if we could somehow go back in time, we could convince them to not do said or do such. We could somehow change what happened. And that's kind of what I mean is we might get into bargaining and then jump back to denial. Or we might be experiencing denial and then going back from denial to bargaining so quickly, it almost seems simultaneously. And there's depression, right? We, we kind of pull from the past and our attention kind of comes right to the present. And there's those feelings of emptiness, those feelings of deep, deep sorrow, and maybe more sorrow than we've ever imagined possible. This stage often feels like it will last forever. And it is depressing. It is depressing to suffer loss. And depression is a normal and appropriate response. Sometimes we just want it to go away. Just save me from this. And I've experienced that in therapy. That wholesome desire to be saved from the depths of depression from the loss of a loved one. Starting to realize that no matter what I do, that person will never come back. And understanding that depression is part of the process. And finally, there's acceptance. And sometimes people think that like acceptance is like, okay, we're done. And that's not necessarily what it means at all. Some people never feel okay or all right about the loss of a loved one or the loss of their addiction or the loss of a past relationship. This stage, however, is about accepting the reality that the change is permanent. We don't make it okay, but we learn to live with the truth of what is. We form a new norm in which to live out of, and that can provide healing. So the psychology group has an excellent article, which I'm just going to share with you some of the points from briefly to help kind of talk about how to deal with grief during the holidays. So some of the things they say to do is to set boundaries with holiday events. Choose what you want and don't want to participate in. You don't have to go to that family event because of the family pressure. You don't have to go into battle if you don't want to. Turn into your grief emotions. Sometimes going through is the way out. Oftentimes our initial reaction is to avoid unpleasant emotions, but we need to experience them, both the pleasant and the unpleasant. Don't attempt to numb yourself with drugs or alcohol. Plan ahead to fill empty holiday roles. When we lose somebody, there are vacant roles that have to be filled. Honor old traditions and old memories. Sometimes it can feel tremendously sad to honor those old traditions, to respect those memories and to discuss them and to share them with others but it can be helpful to continue with those old traditions and to celebrate the individuals who are no longer there, to keep their memory present. Create new traditions. This can be healing for individuals who are grieving. Don't erase old memories, make new ones. Making new memories does not delete the old ones. Remember, you've got to both experience and honor the old traditions and the old memories. You need to create new ones. Identify how you deal and cope with grief. 
Sometimes it's helpful to write a list of how you cope. That way, when the grief hits you and you're in the heat of the moment, you can look at that list and try some of the coping skills that you talked about ahead of time. Do something charitable. Helping others can alleviate sadness because you can bring joy into the life of someone else. And lastly, ask for help when struggling with grief. It's important to reach out to friends and to family and even to professionals if you need to. These complicated emotions can cause us a significant amount of pain, but you are not alone. One of the things that brings me the most sadness is knowing that the stigma of mental health has prevented many a people from getting the help that they need. I often find it interesting as you look through the annals of time, all the great kings and queens and rulers of many different nations and cultures and societies throughout history have all had counselors and sought counsel from wise men and women. And yet for some reason, and I don't know if it's because of America's rugged individualistic mentality that prohibits us from seeking help. Regardless of what it is, oftentimes in today's society in the United States, we don't reach out for the help that we need. It's okay to ask for help. We are here to help. So I want to end with that. Have a safe and blessed holiday. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family, and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated, and maybe you are, but you're not alone.